Welcome to Useful Outsiders, a monthly podcast series brought to you by the Council for International Development. Kia ora koutou. thanks for joining us for episode four. This month we look at how New Zealand can better support people who are forced to flee their homelands. Our speakers discuss New Zealand's refugee and asylum seeker policies and the lived experience of people navigating the system, from application through to resettlement and support services. They look at New Zealand's commitments, quotas and raise some questions around equality. Rachel O'Connor is this month's host. She is the lead advisor to the Race Relations Commissioner at the New Zealand Human Rights Commission. She previously worked for the New Zealand Red Cross, managing their national migration programmes, including the Refugee Quota Community Settlement Programme. Rachel's joined by Bernard Salma, who chairs the Asylum Seekers Support Trust and is a cultural advisor for Refugees as Survivors New Zealand. He is also in the final year of a PhD study at the University of Auckland. His research explores the psychological impact of laws and how that lens can inform and improve New Zealand's refugee status determination procedure. Rachel is also joined by Jay Marlowe. He's a professor of social work and a co-director of the Centre for Asia-Pacific Refugee Studies at the University of Auckland. His research focuses on refugee studies and settlement futures as it relates to migration policy, the role of technologies and disaster risk reduction. You'll hear the speakers discuss a recently published report, Safe Start, Fair Futures. You can find a link to this in the episode notes. We hope you enjoy. Well, kia ora everyone. My name is Rachel O'Connor and I'm delighted uh, to be here today with Jay and uh, Bernard to facilitate the conversation on uh, refugee and asylum policy in New Zealand, something very close to all of our hearts. And um, particularly, I've been very lucky to be in the sector for a while and I've been very lucky to work with Bernard and Jay um, over many years. So I am delighted to be sitting here with my feet up and a cup of coffee, uh, having a chat with both of you. So um, thank you for joining us today. Um, Maybe if we could just start by asking each of you, what is it that got you to the point where you're involved in the sector? What is it that's motivated you to be involved in refugee and asylum work? Um, Jay, can maybe if I hand to you first. Uh, yeah, so uh, kia ora koutou. Uh, it's great to be here. I'd like to thank the mm-hmm. Council for International Development for the opportunity and um, good to be talking with you, Rachel. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, things started for me just over 20 years ago when I went to uh, Guatemala ended up working for an organization that supported uh, children living on the streets. And it was there that I learned about the impacts of the pro- the 36-year Guatemalan civil war that had impacted the lives of um, many of these kids. And many of them hadn't even experienced the civil war themselves as it had ended in 1996, but still through, the, through, their, through their families, they had experienced this, that civil war. And um, that's where I became interested in forced migration issues. And since then, I've worked with uh, indigenous groups in Ecuador as a social worker in Australia. And uh, about just over 10 years ago, came to New Zealand and uh, took an academic post where I really focused on uh, research as it relates to refugee settlement and increasingly transnational lives and livelihoods. Mm, Amazing that that journey started with that such practical kind of personal exposure to real life experiences of what forced migration looks like right through to the academic side. Thanks, Jay. Bernard, what what is it that's motivated you to be in this particular spot that you are today? Yes, um, quite very interesting. For for me, it's 
it's a journey that I've been through as I came to New Zealand as an asylum seeker and then was recognized as a refugee. And I've been living here. Um, I was recognized in 2008 as a refugee and I've been living here ever since. So my motivation comes from my experience living in another country as a refugee and thinking about how I can contribute to improving the conditions for people who are forced to leave their own countries and start a life elsewhere. Yes. Yeah. I'm very grateful to have um, both your operational expertise of what's happening in New Zealand, but also that lived experience as well to join the conversation today. So thank you. I don't know how the two of you find things when you when you have these conversations about migration or policy, and and it's so easy to kind of get stuck in this um, in in the stream of of talking about policy and, and talking about numbers, and and it's so easy to find yourself in that trap of of realizing that you're talking about you know forgetting that you're talking about people's lives. And um, I'm very aware that today, obviously, we're going to be talking about policy and, and numbers. Um, and I guess, you know, do you have any kind of suggestions or advice around, you know, how you navigate those conversations when, you know, this is actually people's lives. This is something very real. Um, I know for me personally, I, I try really hard, particularly around language. So um, I know lots of people approach this differently. I try to avoid using phrases as much as I can, like refugee or asylum seeker, if, if I can, because obviously they're legal, you know, definitions. So I, I try to focus as much as I can on talking about people who have come through the refugee quota or people who have sought asylum, um, you know, just to recognise the humanity and the situation um, and not to get that, that mixed up. I'm aware that um, I don't always get that right, but that's certainly where I try. But, you know, how do you guys kind of have these conversations in ways that recognise that actually we're talking about people and, you know, in often very desperate situations and, and keep the dignify, the dignity part of that conversation going? Yeah, it's, it's actually a very difficult one to, to talk about policy in this space and especially when doing advocacy because... Um, the challenge here is that, you know, we have to talk about the reality of the situations that we've been through, um, moving from our home countries and resettling abroad. And there, there is no better word than that word, a refugee, even more and more now. You know, there's, I see um, in the community where there is more debate that it should be used as forced migrants. But um, actually, Risha, it's, it's really a difficult one. First, because of not just about that we're talking about people's life and sometimes we talk about numbers and people who are really desperate. But the difficulty is here is that um, um, as someone who has um, this tag as a refugee and really when you, we're watching the news, whether it's on TV or it's discussion um, in the community, there is hardly anything that comes from that talks about refugees that is positive. You know, you, you would see people that are struggling, either starving. Like I remember um, just a couple of months ago, three or four months, I was posting something on my Facebook about the situation that is going on in um, in Yemen. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where kids are starving and some are actually looking like they're dying. And then there was also another one in Madagascar from like climate change refugees. So in as much as I wanted to click on like of to like the post and post it on my Facebook because it was coming from the UNHCR. At the same time, the image itself wasn't that good that, um, you know, it's 
it's hard to really look at people in that kind of condition and trying to put it out there and at the same time understanding the stigma and the negativity that it comes when we also have to stand, to the, stand in the community and say we are refugees. So yeah, it, it, it's a very difficult one to navigate, but unfortunately, I don't know any other better word that we can use so far, any other better way of um, talking about it, except that in terms of asylum seekers, uh, more and more I'm saying that there is now that emphasis of talking about people who seek asylum, mm -hmm. that kind of language. That, and I guess that this is more because of sometimes the harsh policies that we would see in other, other countries, you know, like maybe like in Australia where they're building, um, sending people to offshore processing centers. So with those kind of harsh policy, then more and more people are thinking about emphasizing that it is actually people, it's not just um, an asylum seeker, it's not an animal or something else, but it's, yeah, it's a difficult one. Yeah. To, to be able to, to, to do the advocacy or talk in terms of policy without using that word. And there, there are advantages to, to using the word because sometimes it might be that hard word that can get some people, especially the people that are more, more on the other side of policy that are not quite welcoming to asylum seekers or refugees that if they see those pictures and actually know that this is who a refugee look like or this, then it might change their softening their heart a bit in terms of the policies that they design. Yeah. But um, so it's just about a balancing act and thinking about the crowd or the population that we're talking to. Yeah, but but either, either word is it's quite correct for, for me, for my context and experience here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I mean, such a comprehensive answer there, Jay. Is there anything you wanted to add or any advice you have around this? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, what Bernard had to say was, was, was great. And, and I think even your opening, Rachel, is, is spot on. I mean, there's, there's that tension around using people-centered language and the importance of that. And these are arguments around, you know, that these are actually individuals. These are people with families that have lives and livelihoods. They're not just a number in terms of total, you know, we could, you know, 82.5 million forced migrants globally, 8 million Ukrainians that have now, uh, you know, crossed the border. These, these numbers convey sort of a sense of the scale uh, and, and the urgency of the crisis. Um, but it also kind of creates a bit of distance around the, the humanity that we, that we all share. And so I think, I think that there's, there's, there's a place for, for both of them, right? I mean, if we think that 20 to 30 people, uh, you know, if we look at sort of current trends, I mean, 20 to 30 people every minute forcibly displaced from their 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 homes, their friends, their families, their communities, largely because of who they are or what they believe. Um, and that and and at any given point in time that could be anyone. So if you know over the over the over the time that we've got this podcast, that might be 500, a thousand people that have had that experience. That's very sobering. And I think it prevents provi provides a real sense of why now and why this is important. But also that this doesn't become a dominant descriptor, you know, at what point is a refugee no longer a refugee? Well, I mean, in New Zealand, effectively, once you're, you have, you've been recognized as a refugee, you're no longer a refugee in the sense that you no longer have that well-founded fear of persecution. You have that protection. It's, it's one of the durable solutions that the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees identifies. Um, so there is, there's that importance of recognizing, I think, the person first, absolutely, you know, um, and, uh, and I also think that's important that we, that we do know those, these, these numbers, because it does, it does actually show why we need international cooperation and collaboration 
why countries need to sign up to commitments to ensuring that we're addressing what is in many cases a global crisis. I mean, you touched on those numbers of the Ukrainian numbers, which are just absolutely staggering, you know, 8 million people in such a short space of time. Um, And of course, you know, many of us have seen on the news, the images and the stories. I mean, it's had, you know, global coverage in ways that other conflicts haven't. And, um, you know, certainly in New Zealand, you know, you need to applaud the New Zealand government for what um, actions that I've taken in terms of, you know, donating aid and simply because of the size of the conflict and, and, and that um, and the humanitarian impact that it's having. But, you know, they have taken that unusual um, or unexpected, I guess, response of granting, you know, 4,000 visas um, for Ukrainian family members, uh, for people who are living here, the family who are already living here in New Zealand, which, you know, I, I guess my question from your perspective, like how does that how does that um, measure up against other responses that New Zealand has made in terms of other conflicts? And that? I think first and foremost, it's it's really important to emphasise that that the New Zealand's response, which I mean came came together uh, pretty quickly uh, from when Russia invaded Ukraine, that's offered, as you noted, Rachel, four thousand spaces to family members uh, for Ukrainian nationals residing in New Zealand. Um, and so, I mean, I think in many ways that that's welcome and it actually shows how quickly governments can act when there is that, that, that political will and, and perhaps even that social license to do so. And so, you know, but we can look at, uh, if you look at the number of Ukrainians living in, in New Zealand, it's, there's actually more Ethiopians living in New Zealand than Ukraine. And yet we can actually look at what happened and what's, and what's continuing to happen in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, where uh, an estimated 500,000 people perished because of, of the conflict, maybe not necessarily directly due to, to, to the conflict itself, but because of famine and these other sorts of things that, that have, have been a consequence of it and, and a displacement of more than 2 million people. There, there was no such, there was no similar response that, you know, a number, no number of Ethiopian families that would have loved to have, to have been able to provide uh, safety and security to family members who, who remain in precarious circumstances. We can look at what's happened when, when the Taliban stormed into Kabul last August at, at breathtaking speed. And again, the, the government, not as fast as Ukraine, but they did develop the critical purpose visas, which has now resulted in about maybe 1,200 people somewhere around that, that have come to uh, to New Zealand, but most of those spaces were reserved for people who are human rights defenders or people who had served the New Zealand government or military in some way, shape, or form. These weren't necessarily family reunification approaches. So again, you know, um, whilst this response is welcome, it also kind of raises uncomfortable questions as why is it that, that other groups weren't, weren't, weren't given access to the same levels of support when their situations were, were um, equally as, as dire. And I, mean, I think those uncomfortable questions, you know, certainly are being asked domestically because it is quite a significant, you know, <laughs> response um, that probably hasn't been seen in other responses. Um, but yeah. I think those questions are also being asked internationally, aren't they, in terms of the response to both the Ukraine situation and possibly the Afghan situation. I mean, Bernard, from your perspective, um, I mean, why do you think that is that the the support might be different or um, in terms of policy approaches in that situation? Yes, um, it's one of those areas where it's, it, it's been welcoming actually, you know, from, from the community to, to, to see that the government 
you know, it's able to do this kind of uh, responses, particularly in the uh, Ukrainian situation, and not only New Zealand government, but you know, other countries like the United States or UK that are, or even Europe that quite easily open their borders and let uh, Ukrainians flow into their countries as they're fleeing from the war. But um, at the same time, it's not been good news from, you know, if I have to be honest here, it, it hasn't been quite um, good news in terms of people that come from other ethnic backgrounds that, you know, Jay just cited, for instance, um, like from Ethiopia, where you have many people from those communities here that actually came, were brought here as refugees or from Myanmar, Rohingya, uh, Rohingya refugees as well, that they also experienced um, a military coup takeover of the country, you know, last year. And we saw how the, the protests and the seriousness, how dire the situation was looking. But um, so when you, you sit, um, if, you, if you have to sit, you know, in my shoes as someone from from ethnic backgrounds or for my community generally, and we're looking at this response, th there is no way, you know, that we can process it other than thinking about it, that it, it, it may seem, you know, the skin, skin color or race has got an issue to, to play here because otherwise, how, how do we explain that, you know, very easily the government can let 4,000 people from Ukraine come here, whereas, we, we, we know that there are, there are other situations that are really bad, like the, the one of Ethiopia, where the, the military from the Ethiopian government was moving completely into the Tigray region and no one was safe because people had to flee into hills and into Sudan, but the government did not respond or act in any way, or even, or even in Afghanistan, you know, it took so much pressure before they, they, they accepted some numbers. So, for us as a community, we, we see it as, you know, the skin color of race playing a very significant issue. And it's not only for New Zealand, it's it's even in the Ukraine itself, when people were trying to run out of Ukraine at the same time, there was um, a lot of um, videos on social media where the Ukrainians were letting only uh, the, the white people get into the trains and go across, whereas, a lot of the students that were from Africa, for instance, um, they were stopping them from, from boarding the train to escape, which is quite horrible. It was a horrible thing to see. So I think in as much as um, in the sense of humanity, we, we are doing a great work um, offering opportunities for people who are fleeing, but it's definitely quite important for governments when they make this kind of decisions that they really think very critically because if, if, if you're sitting in my shoes and looking at the other side of things, it doesn't look quite, quite right. You know, and I, it's not only for me, I've had people from the community who are Kiwi born, um, European white, and they've called me to talk about it and say, it's really very disgusting mm -hmm. you know, what the government is doing in Ukraine and not looking at other refugees. So it, it's a sentiment that goes across not only from from our perspective as um, Africans yeah. or Middle Eastern, yeah. I think that's a completely understandable reaction from communities within mm -hmm. New Zealand, you know, to see that. And I think it's a tension that we hold, isn't it, to be both, um, you know, pleased about 
a good response to the Ukrainian situation and the Afghan situation, but I guess, you know, encouraging policy decision makers to, to actually consider equity in those policies to move quickly. Um, but, you know, think about equity and, and it, you know, those policy decisions obviously have a very real impact on the people who are, you know, seeking protection on the other side, but it also does ripple out to communities who are settled here, who are seeking support themselves for loved ones overseas. So, I mean, one of, I mean, I guess that links that kind of, some of those questions about equity and, um in policy and that sort of side of things. I mean, for me, that connects to the work that both of you have been working on in terms of the Safe Start Fair Future report where, you know, it seems very clearly that you're saying um, that there is not an equitable or fair response and how people who come um, seeking asylum are treated in verse, uh, you know, in relation to other humanitarian categories. So, I mean, I'm quite keen just to hear from yourselves about, you know, what is the key findings from the report? I feel like a bit like I'm on Oprah or something on a talk show where I'm asking you to kind of present your latest movie and tell us mm-hmm. the, the top levels of it, um, you know, the, the um, what it's about. But, um, but you know, this has obviously been a huge piece of work. You've just presented it, um, Parliament, recently on it. So, yeah, in terms of top findings, what is it that you, you know, have found through that report? Yeah, it's um, it's w- one of those issues that has been really uh, long overdue in terms of um, the, the changes that we're, we're, we're seeking and asking as a community because um, for some reason we, we don't quite understand why New Zealand treats people who are recognized under the same refugee con- uh, convention, but treats those who come as asylum seekers um, and seek claim refugee on shore. And then quite very, they treat them very differently from those who um, are recognized as refugee by the United Nations and then resettled in the country. So our findings sort of point that um, as as a country and more importantly, the government, if we want people that come to New Zealand as refugee to have a, a safe start, more particularly for asylum seekers um, and have a fair future, you know, if we want to invest so that we are building citizens that would within the shortest time possible contribute to this country, we have to treat them in a way that it's safe um, and the, the word we use there, save us, it's a word that can really be unpacked. First, one of the, 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 the main thing is that the process that people go through to be recognized as um, asylum seekers, that is the administrative and the judicial process, that are very um, stressful and sometimes leave people with other um, mental issues that they may have had, but going through this process can re-traumatize that uh, vulnerability that they already have. But more importantly, in terms of policy, on paper, it's there are clear um, provisions on, on things that asylum seekers can have, even in the Refugee Convention. For instance, um, people should have the right to work when they are going through this process to claim asylum. They should be supported to get um, accommodation if they couldn't work and be able to provide for themselves. They, they, they are entitled to, to, to live together with the family because it's, it's a very core value um, that we as humanity have come to accept. But what we do know about this process is that when people are going through the process claiming asylum, often uh, for some, not 
not um, some of those people, they will not be granted these visas. So they are left without a visa. And then that means that they have to really struggle through the process because every other thing that they are entitled to, to in New Zealand is dependent on that visa. But the moment they don't have the visa, it means they cannot assess welfare. They can't, they are not able to, to, to work, for instance, to, to pay for their accommodation. So it just leads to all other problems. And even when um, they have that visa, the, the other challenge that people face again is that um, sometimes when they make contact with the government departments, for instance, it could be work and income, or it could even be housing in New Zealand. And it's, and it's quite stated in the policy that they, they are entitled to, they can um, assess welfare support because they have a visa and they have a claim process. But again, when they contact these government departments, uh, we are seeing cases in the community where people are being turned back and being declined what they should have. And this is something, a problem that has been really, really long. Mm -hmm. So in terms of when someone is going through the process and asylum seeker, there is really so much that could be changed to make that process safe for them. But more importantly, it's the mental health support. Right now we have a system where accounts, you know, really point to any community organization that I can say that this is an organization that has been funded to provide mental health support for, for asylum seekers, for people who are seeking asylum seekers. Despite that, we know, you know, from the literature, the evidence overseas and even in New Zealand that for many in this population groups, there, there are people, many that will have mental health issues, either from experiences that they had in their home countries while they were fleeing, could imagine for in Ukraine or other even other experiences that are not even related to the reason why they left their country, but unfortunately that they, they had those experiences. But it's quite strange and unusual that um, the, the government hasn't really thought about providing funding a mental health service mm. that actually looks after the mental health of asylum seekers. I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at the level for asylum seekers so Jay can talk about um, the convention refugees. <laughs> Yes, great. Thanks for that summary and, and providing a number of examples of where we need to improve a number of things. And so I think the just just as a background, the, the Safe Start Fair Future report is a collaboration between the Center for Asia Pacific Refugee Studies and the Asylum Seeker Support Trust. There's more than eight authors on the report, but there's even more people that sit behind it in terms of help to inform the report, but also even that Bernard's PhD, his doctoral research, which is looking at uh, therapeutic jurisprudence in the refugee space determination system, that even some of the interviews that he's done with asylum seekers are actually what give life to the report around people's lived experience of these things. And so um, the the report Safe Start, Fair Future, the idea of a safe start for asylum seekers, that, that, that at its most basic level, that people have a legal right, that we're signatory to a refugee convention, that means that people can can seek asylum here in New Zealand, and that New Zealand will then cons will consider recognizing that refugee status. And if so, New Zealand needs to provide protection. It's, it's as simple as that. We, we have signed up to international commitments to do that. Yet the problem is, is that we provide almost no support, no government support, as people go through the complexities of that, of, of that process. 
And there's even uh, two reviews that have come out, the Casey reviews that have even sort of talked about some of the complexities and, and the difficulties of this, that, that this can be an incredibly stressful time to vulnerable groups. At the very least, we should be providing support so people aren't exposed to destitution and poverty while their legal right for refugee status recognition is considered. That's just a bare minimum that we should be doing as a society. So what we're asking in this report are not radical things. They're actually just trying to meet basic human rights standards and, to, and for us to meet obligations that we've already willingly and, and, uh, and actually celebrate obligations that we signed up to. The second component is the idea behind a, a fair future. If we go back to the refugee convention, there's nothing in the convention that says there are these things called quota refugees and there are these things called convention refugees. It's about actually defining what a refugee is. And it's because of that well-founded fear of persecution that countries that are signatory to it agree to provide certain protections. Within New Zealand, we have decided to call, to create this group, these two different categories called quota refugees, which are groups that come in on an annual basis as a government agreed number of up to that number that we're willing to take. These are people that already have refugee status um, uh, outside of New Zealand. They're, they're then selected and they come to New Zealand and they receive a range of settlement supports, uh, both in terms of orientation and then and, and as they begin their settlement journey. Um, convention refugees, on the other hand, are people that apply for refugee recognition within New Zealand. And they're the ones that are known as asylum seekers. These people, if their claim is recognized, become what's called convention refugees because the refugee convention is applied to then determine if, 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 if they're accepted or not. These people don't have access to the orientation. They don't see nearly the level of support and entitlements that quota refugees receive. And in addition, because there's so much confusion around what convention refugees and quota refugees are able to access, oftentimes even rights and entitlements that convention refugees have they aren't able to realize them because groups like work and income or other government ministries, certain caseworkers, case managers, they oftentimes, because there's these confusions, convention refugees miss out on certain supports that they're even entitled to. So for us, we're saying, well, actually, a refugee is a refugee. We should treat them the same. We fully appreciate that that the pathways that a quota refugee or convention refugee might come might mean that they've had different experiences, but really, um, that we, we, we shouldn't be establishing supports and entitlements by the way that they came to New Zealand. If, they have, if they've been recognized as a refugee, they should, they should have access to that support if they choose, if they, if they feel that they need it. I mean, and the numbers are so low. Why do you think it is that government hasn't put in support um, previously for this group? So, look, I mean, I think at its most fundamental level, if we even look over the last, particularly particularly the last 20 years, you can see that asylum seeker issues are potentially a, 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 a political tinderbox. They, they can really ignite really powerful uh, discourses or, or debates around borders and, and security and all these sorts of things. Governments have actually won elections. I mean, if you even look at the Australian election where John Howard won over the Children Overboard Affair, which turned out to be a lot of hot air, but it actually turned an election around and, and, and some analysis even suggests that it might have even won the election for the Liberal Party. Um, so, uh, you know, asylum seeker issues, refugee issues are things that, you know, we, we've seen have been very hot political topics 
in, in Australia, across Europe, United States, Canada, and, and even indeed in, in New Zealand. And one of the things that I think that's, that's happened is that some of these debates have sort of shifted from thinking about refugees and asylum seekers as people being at risk to it almost sort of shifting to sort of thinking of them as a risk. And I think that this shift, and, and, and the evidence doesn't point to that, but this shift that almost this, this idea that situations that, 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 are, that are perceived as real are real in their consequences. And so what we see, we start to see that, that there's a hardening of policies towards uh, asylum seekers. And I think the reason why we haven't seen much change in this that is, is partly because of uh, a lack of, of political courage and political will. Um, I mean, if you actually think about it, supporting people in their early years to settle well probably actually makes great economic sense from a long-term standpoint um not only does it make sense it also makes dollars and cents and so so that you know but we have to take a long-term view to this um and it's oftentimes when you get this anti-immigrant uh furor that 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 that, that gets whipped up on talkback radio and these sort of five, 10 second sound bites. It's these sorts of things that, that actually kind of are, 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 are quite destructive towards actually re- to, to realizing which would be very, very good policies that would, that would not only benefit asylum seekers and refugees, but, but the whole of society. Mm. And both of you have spoken about policies that really have such a, can have such a detrimental impact on people's lives, on their mental health. Um, and I think a lot of people in New Zealand who, who aren't involved in the sector would be surprised to know that, you know, up until reasonably recently, people have been detained in jail, um, a number of people, you know, if for literally um, seeking asylum. You know, so you could actually be detained in prison um, because your identity is still being confirmed or there's, you know, for, for whatever reasons. Um, and that always struck me as an incredible, incredibly... Um, you know, a, a policy that that was obviously against international conventions, um, but also, you know, to, to actually have people in prisons who had committed no crime and really with often for quite extensive periods of time. And then, you know, we've seen in history that uh, people have come out and have been proven to be refugees. So you commented on the report um, that was just done by Victoria Casey um, recently that that said essentially that this shouldn't be happening and the immigration, you know, came, you know, an immediate response that said they would no longer um, be detaining um, asylum seekers in, in detention. How significant is that decision that immigration has, you know, made in terms of in response to that report? Yeah, it's um, in terms of, you know, what, what, the, the kind of information and discussions we're getting in the community, it's really been uh, a very relieving and exciting news to hear that um, this will not be happening. And we, we are looking forward to immigration to implement the changes as they have declared that they will be um, implementing all of the changes in, in the report. But um, we can only hope for the best and we'll do our best to, to keep in touch and and uh, ensure that the, 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 the changes that are, are put in place actually reflect what the report says, because um, as a community that it's quite small, often doesn't have that voice or the power to, to really sit on the table with the government. In, from, from other experiences that we've had, where changes can be promised, often they, they don't happen. 
if, if we even go back, sorry, I'm sorry, I might just wander off a bit, but if we go back and look at the um, New Zealand refugee resettlement strategy, when that was developed um, around 2012 or 2011, there was um, quite a clear indication from, from the discussion that took place in parliament that the, you know, the government will be looking at including uh, convention refugees, because right now it's only it's a system that looks spells out how the government can work with quota refugees, but convention refugees are out of it. And what that has meant is that for over close to 10 years now, uh, the, all the other government departments or government departments as a whole don't quite know how to work with convention refugees. So we see here that there's a case where there was clear indication when the policy was being formed, you know, even in the, the word of the minister at the time that um, convention refugees will be included, but we're waiting and we've been begging for that to happen, it hasn't. So in as much as immigration has announced that they will be implementing these changes as a community, we're quite skeptical, we would, until we start seeing those changes, then we would be embrace, we will embrace it. But so far, we um, we just we have the hopes, but we we're not sure whether it's actually going to happen. But we want to give them the benefit of the doubt and actually be ready to to talk with immigration if they come asking on how this could be done. And you know, especially for like an organization like the Asylum Seekers Support Trust, that in the past we've had people that were at Mount Eden Prison while waiting for their identity or their claims to be processed. But when COVID came, suddenly they were released to us, about six or so of them, but they, we still had to support them every week for them to go into town to the um, RSU refugee status unit to, to sign. And that went well. None of them ever escaped or harmed New Zealand or do anything wrong for, for these um, beautiful countries. And many of those people are already on the pathway of becoming citizens. So, but we have seen from that experience that you know things can be done differently if there is that will to do it. And now that immigration is saying they would want to work and implement these changes, we will be looking forward to that, even though we, we are a bit apprehensive. Yeah. <laughs> so Jay, you know, if people are listening to this and want to know what it is that people can do to help, because you know it can be incredibly hard when you're watching. Um, some of those scenarios on the TV, on the nightly news, and you desperately want to do something either for the international situation or you want to do something in New Zealand, what is it that people can actually do that you know is genuinely going to make a difference? Um, I think there's a number of things that, that can be done, and I think it's actually really important that it's, that it's a whole of society approach, that if I think we just say, right, it's, this is just up to the government to solve these issues, I don't think that that's actually what this is about. It's actually about... Uh, you know, us, us welcoming some of New Zealand's newest members in, in, in our society and, and the great contributions that they can make. But I think for that to happen, there has to be a distinction between someone being present and then being able to participate and a difference between an invite and a welcome. And I think this is where society plays an absolutely critical, even indeed a central role. Um, and so that, uh, you know, Yes, governments can, can fund access to different supports and that sort of thing, but these things don't necessarily inculcate a sense of belonging. A sense of belonging comes when the people living next to you perhaps invite you over for a barbecue or, you know, at, at school sort of extend, do you, want, do you want to be part of my group or something like that? 
So the ways in which we can sort of bring people into our social networks, uh, this, this, this can help people to feel that, 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 that they're cared about, but it can also connect them to important opportunities. We know very well that New Zealand is a network society and that oftentimes, you know, that, that idea that, you know, a job you see in the newspapers is, is almost like, well, do you even apply for it if you don't, if you don't know the people and that sort of thing? There's, there's these, these powerful networks and you know, the powers of these degrees of separation. And if we can connect, the more that we can connect, connect with people, I think it even goes back to our earlier conversation about sort of, you know, seeing, seeing, seeing people as opposed just to a number or seeing a person as opposed to a refugee. And when you actually recognize that we probably share far more in common than there are those differences, this actually opens opportunities for connection that can mean positive outcomes not just for refugees, but for, for, for all of society. Uh, there's also things like the volunteer program with the New Zealand Red Cross, where you can actually volunteer to work with, with refugee background families. Um, you can uh, uh, support organizations that are, that, 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 are, that are helping refugees, such as the Asylum Seeker Support Trust. Um, so there's a range of different ways that you can, you can get involved. And you can also ask your local MP to, uh, to, to support these things. The number, I've, I've had a number of conversations with politicians where I've actually found that they can't even articulate the difference between an asylum seeker, a convention refugee, and a quota refugee. If we don't have that base level understanding with our politicians, then how in the world are our policies even supposed to even change for the better? Awesome. Thanks. Some really practical suggestions there, Jay. Maybe just one final question for both of you. Um, the, I mean, it's such extraordinary times, whether it's, you know, um, internationally or domestically in terms of migration, you know, for New Zealand to close its borders, um, you know, two years ago and to be only, you know, opening up again now is obviously something that's never occurred before. Um, and so how migration is being talked about is quite different. Um, how migrants are being talked about is quite different. Um, and then in that time, we've had such um, changes in the humanitarian streams as well. We've had promises, um, you know, to increase the refugee quota. Obviously, that hasn't been achieved because of what happened um, with COVID. We've had um, unexpected humanitarian one-off intakes, such as the Afghans and the Ukrainians um, that we've spoken to. The deal um, that I think is nine years old between um, Australia and New Zealand around um, the the people who were being held in Papua New Guinea and Australia um, is now coming to fruition. It looks like, you know, there'll be about 450 people coming through there. You know, public perceptions of migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, all of that is, you know, so much has been changed. And, you know, you spoke, um, Bernard, about the, the development of the, you know, the refugee and the migrant strategies um, and those being developed and, and they're being updated at the moment. So I guess, my question for both of you, with, with everything that's going on in the world and in New Zealand in the space of forced migration, you know, what is it that, you know, in terms of the policy that needs to be changed or where you think the priority needs to be, and maybe it's linked to, you know, the work that you've been doing with the report, but, you know, what is it that you would like to see over the next bit of time change um, in response to, you know, the situations that we're looking at currently? Well, I, I, th I think there's, I think we can think about this on a number of levels. And so uh, I think if we look within New Zealand, it would be, I think some, some at, at, at a bare minimum, I think it would be great to see that asylum seekers are provided the necessary supports while their claim is being processed. I think that that's a bare minimum. Um, 
And again, I think that that makes sense on, on, on many levels. For convention refugees, I think that we should, we should be giving them equal access to entitlements as quota refugees. Uh, for convention refugees to streamline the permanent residency process, the time has, has increased over threefold over the last 10 years. There's no reason why uh, that, that needs to be the case. 98, 99% of all cases are applications are approved but yet this this exacerbates the uncertainty this creates um uh anxiety it it, it doesn't leave the people to feeling you know if we're talking about sort of mental health and well-being these these are things that that could make a very big difference um and you know we've also got some exciting things that are happening we've got the community sponsorship that's 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 been uh um from the pilot, we're, we're doing that for another three years. We have effectively doubled the refugee family support category. But yet, as you noted, Rachel, a lot of these numbers haven't been realized since COVID. So New Zealand signed up to 1,500 people a year. New Zealand has never met that yet. So we're still waiting for that to happen. And there's actually a huge backlog of, of people. So I think from 2020 over the 2020 intake, uh, only about 220 of that 1,500 were able to make it. For this current intake, uh, we're, we're tracking under 1,000 people for that. So we're, um, and if you look at the family unification spaces, uh, uh, I think maybe 55 people over the last two years, something like that. So it would be wonderful if we actually just said, we'll actually meet those commitments that we've already signed up to. But every, every, everything that I've heard so far is that that's not the case. So, um, and you mentioned that the number of you know, people from, from Papua New Guinea, that would be welcome, but it's actually as part of the quotas, as opposed to in addition to the quota. So really, I think, uh, you know, if we look at the per capita, a number of people from refugee backgrounds to population, New Zealand is well, well down the table in relation to that. So there's many things to celebrate within New Zealand, but I also think that um, as, 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 a, as a, you know, a relatively very well-resourced country, we could be doing a lot more and, and recognize that, that long-term that refugees can be a very post-causative proposition provided it's, we go beyond um, an invite to extending an actual welcome. Just the last thing that I'd like to say is that this conversation is focused largely within New Zealand's borders. And I think that New Zealand has an important place to play in the region. If we recognize that for refugee resettlement or opportunities to live within New Zealand, we're talking about a drop in the bucket relative to global numbers of forced migrants. So trying to think about the ways in which we, we were active in the region and can even show leadership and punch above our weight to ensure that we're actually not just dealing with that 1%, but also trying to think about that, the, the, the other 99% and how we can play an important role in trying to ensure durable solutions for people who will never have the opportunities to come to places like Australia or Canada or in, in Europe or indeed New Zealand. Yeah, that's a fantastic point, Jay. Thank you, particularly at regional leadership that we could play. Bernard, just final comments from you in terms of what you'd like to see uh, policy-wise over the next period of time. I think the, the, the key one for me is um, inclusion of the um, convention refugees in the um, New Zealand refugee resettlement strategy. I think that is that would, would make so much difference. Um, and um, and as Jay said before, um, it's also would, would it would do this country a lot of good. Um, to have to ensure that um, asylum seekers' needs are met during the time that they're claiming uh, they're going through the claim process. 
it's this, this, this little things that can be done and but would make so much meaning for, for us as a community because um, it, it simply means that we can start um, contributing to the society as early as we can rather than being left in destitute uh, while we're going through that process. Sometimes some people feeling very um, frustrated and sometimes even disorientated in their thinking because you know, their needs are not uh, being met and the process itself is very stressful. So um, it, it will be very um, helpful and beneficial for, for us all as a country to, to ensure that um, the needs of asylum seekers are made more importantly, the, the mental health needs, you know, funding for an organization like RAS, uh, Refugee as Survival New Zealand, specifically to, to provide for, to look after the mental health of asylum seekers it's, it's very crucial because right now what happened is that asylum seekers have to go through the mainstream and and the literature the research it, it's saying over and over that these are the kind of problems that people come in to the country as false migrants or even sometimes uh, immigrants generally the kind of problems that they, they face often in terms of mental health require specific kind of cultural um, clinicians, mental health clinicians, to be able to provide that intervention, which in many cases we will not find in the mainstream mm. system. So yeah, so that, that would be good. It would be good to see this kind of changes, yeah. Absolutely. Seeing that in the strategy just seems essential, doesn't it? Mm. Thank you to both of you for um, for what you've shared, just those pearls of wisdom. Um, but also I just want to acknowledge the work that you both do day in and day out um, in the organisations that you work for. But also I know um, that both of you do a lot hands-on in the community as well. And, you know, a huge thank you for the report that you've both been, you know, obviously um, significantly involved in that has shone a light in terms of some of the inequity around uh, people seeking asylum. And, you know, we hope as a country we can do better. We certainly have the resources to do better um, and there's an opportunity for us to do that and treat people um, humanely and with dignity so look thanks so much for your time today and uh, we really appreciate it Kia ora. Kia ora. thanks Rachel. Kia ora, Rachel thank you Rachel thank you for listening to useful outsiders please subscribe share rate and review and help us to spread the word We'd love to hear from you, so if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. You can find our email in the episode notes. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.